We are delighted to be joined by the author of a brand new book, Demons, What the Bible Really Says About the Powers of Darkness. Dr. Michael Heiser, welcome to Exposit the Word. Yeah, thank you for having me. So before we talk about your brand new book, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a Christian. Okay, well, I, I don't have any, or I didn't have any, you know, sort of spiritual upbringing when I was young. Mm. Um, I became a believer when I was in high school. Yeah. And it was it was largely through the influence of and the friendship of, you know, a boy I met when I was nine, uh, who was a Christian and his, his uh, you know, his family was as well. He, mm. His mom was uh, single because her husband had left her because she became a Christian. And so a single mom, four kids, they lived next door to my grandmother. And I was I was there at my grandmother's house a lot because yeah. my parents had gotten divorced. Yeah. And, you know, we just came together and became really good friends. And that was their family was my first exposure to anything uh, that you would call the gospel. And then, you know, that maintained that friendship over time. I eventually uh, visited where they you know, went to church when I was when I was older, and heard the gospel. You know, with clarity, and and came to believe it, came to embrace it. I understood it, and and embraced it. And you know, then I, you know, started a you know a new Christian life in high school. I was the only believer in my my family. My parents thought I had joined a cult. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was you know it was you know there were there was a lot of tension there but eventually they figured out that wasn't the case and i was just strange <laughs> so i i graduated from being in a cult to just being a little odd yeah. <laughs> and professionally it's really influenced what you've done with your career as well hasn't it michael tell us a little bit about that yeah yeah, I, I was always interested in anything old and strange. Uh, so when I became a believer, the Bible just sort of fit right in there. Yeah. And, you know, as, as I read it, I and I was really in a good church. I was in a church that took Scripture seriously. So we had a lot of content, and I came to love biblical theology. I, I was good academically in school, even though I didn't have any direction. Um, none, none of my parents... You know, and really immediate family had ever gone to college. So, you know, I, I was good at that. I, I, I loved to think about it. I was good at languages. I enjoyed them and eventually went to Bible college for a while. I, I went to seminary for a while and eventually wound up in graduate school. And I, I decided to go into Old Testament and Semitic languages because I thought that's where the most confusion was, the most yeah. problems. Yeah. And I, I was not mistaken. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I had that intuition. I found out the hard way that was the case. Yeah. But uh, that, that's how I wound up, you know, being a, getting a PhD in Hebrew Bible and Semitic languages. Yeah. So give us an overview of this book and how did you come to write it? Well, this book is a sort of an expansion on a subject, or subject matter. Or kind of a drill down on subject matter that is introduced in my my book Unseen Realm, the Unseen mm -hmm. Realm, which you know the response to that has been sort of crazy. Yeah, you know, it's, it's I think it's sold like 130,000 units now. Wow. Which I I didn't count on. I you know I I originally thought am I going to have any friends left? Yeah. <laughs> when this thing goes out. <laughs> but the, the response was just so overwhelming that. You know, as, as we wanted to continue writing things like that, and I wasn't ready and still I'm not ready for an Unseen Realm 2. I mean, I have plenty of material. I have, I have another two or three of those. Yeah. 
uh, in terms of material, but just at the place I was, we, we figured, well, why don't we just, you know, drill down into some topics and then that content, yeah. you know, we can repurpose later. And so I did angels and then this one's demons. And what the unique sort of approach to this is, and people who have read Unseen Realm will, will not see this coming, you know, out of left field. They will, they'll have some context for it is that this is the only book on this topic that approaches the, the, the subject of supernatural evil mm. from the perspective of three uh, rebellions, uh, three supernatural rebellions in the Old Testament, really really Genesis 1 through 11 and then extending on into the life of Abraham. Mm. Nobody else does that, but, but that would have been obvious to uh, an Israelite, you know, reader, a, a, a literate Israelite, and it's someone living in the Second Temple period, which is the period between the Testaments, that would have been obvious. And I, I introduce this to, to Christians this way. I say, look, you know, I'm going to ask you, and if you ask the average Christian, you know, why is the world such a mess? Why, why do we have evil and depravity? Mm. You know, just why is it the way it is? Yeah. The answer you would get is, well, that's the fall. Yeah. It's Genesis 3. It's what happened in Eden. But if you ask the same question again to a literate, you know, Israelite and a literate, you know, first century Jew, somebody in the Second Temple period, that's not the answer you would get. Mm. The answer you would get is, well, there's actually three reasons. Now, the first one, you know, what what started this whole ball rolling is what happened in Eden. But then there's this Genesis six thing, and then there's what happened at Babel. And and if I have found because of Unseen Realm, when you get into that, a lot of Christians have no idea what I'm even talking about even now. Because we've been trained to sort of demythologize Genesis 6, which cuts it off from all the places that the content of that passage bleeds into, both in the Old and the New Testaments. Mm. And we think we know what happened at the Babel story because we read Genesis 11, and and we, ne we never see Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9, and some other passages in Deuteronomy. And I'll confess, I didn't either. I, I was a PhD student before I ran into it. Yeah. And it, it's because, you know, it's not until you get into that kind of environment where you have to be reading things in primary, you know, the primary languages and you have to be engaged with textual criticism. You have to really know what, what what's going on in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I had never seen it, you know, and, and we, we could talk about what, you know, what that is, what that thing that isn't, isn't seen. I'll just, you know, tell your audience this way. If you read Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9, it'll say something in, you know, in some English translations like, you know, when the Most High, we know who that is, it's God, mm -hmm. okay, when the Most High divided up the nations when he set their boundaries, and that's what happens at Babel, he, you know, did so, he divided them up according to the number of the sons of God. But Israel, verse 9, is Yahweh's portion, Jacob is his allotted inheritance. And there are some English translations that will say that, but, but a lot of them will say he divided them up according to the number of the sons of Israel. And that's why I never saw sons of God. I never saw anything supernatural here. Uh, sons of Israel, you don't have to be a textual critic to realize that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because why would God at Babel divide the nations up according to the number of the sons of Israel? Because Israel doesn't exist yet. Yeah. Israel is only going to exist after Babel. That's you know the call of Abraham and then Abraham as children. Yeah. And there's, there's, a, there's a significant textual disagreement there. And, and what the Dead Sea Scrolls say is sons of God. You know, it's the oldest textual material we have in the Septuagint, which is the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament that Jesus used and the apostles used. Mm -hmm. 
in many many cases that also that says angels of god so it has again this very supernatural flavor to it and what happens at babel is god divorces humanity he's had enough he he basically severs the relationship but he doesn't do it permanently because what he essentially does is he is he says look i'm going to start over I'm going to call this guy Abram from Ur of the Chaldees, and I'm going to, his wife's perfect because she can't have kids, so just watch this. So I'm going to raise up another human family from nothing, mm. and they're going to be Israel, and it's through them that all these other nations are going to come back to me. They're ultimately going to be blessed, but I'm done. I'm, I'm going to punish the nations for, for disobeying another – the Edenic mandate. We're trying to restore Eden, what was lost. But they don't do it. They congregate. They build, you know, a ziggurat, a tower at Babel to make a name for themselves. And of course, ziggurats are part of temple complexes, so they're trying to tame the deity here. And God says, "No, we're not going to do that. It's not what I asked you to do." Mm-hmm. And so this this is a this leads to idolatry. This maybe some of your readers will have asked themselves the question, "Well." You know, why is it in, you know, or in these early chapters of Genesis, everybody seems to know who the true God is, and there's like only one of them. And mm. all of a sudden, when we get to the end of Genesis 11, when we get to Abraham's family, Terah, Terah is an idolater. We find that out from Joshua, the end of the book of Joshua. How, where'd that come from? And and this is the answer. God had, dispenses the nations. He assigns them to other supernatural beings, members of the heavenly host, the sons of God, and eventually... That doesn't go well. I don't think they were evil when God assigned them to, to the nations. But Psalm 82 makes it very clear that they fail or they just deliberately sow chaos among the nations and they're going to die like men because of it. I mean, God is judging them in Psalm 82. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we never see, you know, quite see these things. I'll give you another example. The book of Daniel, your, your listeners are probably really familiar with Daniel's theology that there are you know, again, hostile, supernatural, divine beings behind world empires. You know, you have the prince of Persia, prince of Greece, you know, Michael is the prince of Israel, and you know, the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece are opposing Michael in Daniel chapter 10. Have you ever asked yourself, well, where does Daniel get this idea? Mm-hmm. Well, he gets it from Deuteronomy 32. Mm-hmm. He gets it from Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9, what, what, what happens at Babel. But, but again, we never see these things. So the book Demons basically... And I, the subtitle is very deliberate, what the Bible really says about the powers of darkness, because not all powers of darkness are demons. Yeah. Demons are, are a very specific category and, and frankly, fairly low level. But the rest of the supernatural world that is hostile to God and everything that God wants, that, that you know propels anti-Eden everywhere they can, there's a whole range of characters that, that are going on, and they extend from these three episodes, Genesis 3, Genesis 6, and then the, the Babel event, Genesis mm-hmm. 11 or Deuteronomy 32. And so I tackle the subject from that perspective, and no other book on demons has ever done that. Yeah. I don't know why, yeah. but you know, I figured, well, here's a contribution. I can you know, sort of bring back what used to be a just the, the sort of – very common way of, of, of understanding all this. And, you know, maybe that'll help. Maybe that'll help sort some of this out. Yeah, yeah. Hollywood has done much to confuse um, people's knowledge mm-hmm. with demons and, and, you know, powers of darkness. What do we factually know from the Bible about powers of darkness? Well, I, you know, the, I, well, let's just, you know, do, do a bit, bit of a scatter shot here. Yeah. Um, you know, when it comes to the the third rebellion, again, the, what happens at Babel and then how that 
situation just really degenerates and we see the sort of the end result of it in Psalm 82. Mm -hmm. This is not only where Daniel gets his theology, it's where Paul gets his theology about principalities and powers. If you look at the terms that Paul uses, principalities, powers, rulers, thrones, dominions, you know, these are all terms of geographical dominion. So mm -hmm. we can learn from, you know, one set of rebels uh, that there is a sense that behind the things that we see going on in, in our world on a geopolitical level, and it's really, you know, influencing the influencers, okay, that there's a supernatural intelligence behind what we see happening. Mm -hmm. It's not entirely of, of, of human origin. I mean, people are subject to manipulation. I mean, all, all of us are, but the Bible informs us that, you know, behind the, the people who hold power on earth there is something going on it's either for good or evil and basically if you're not aligned with with yahweh and again you know no no, no nation was other than israel yeah. you know in the old testament days if if this is not the case then these peoples these nations are subject to hostile supernatural intelligences that not only you know hate god mm -hmm. But they hate his people, and they mm -hmm. want to sow as much chaos as they can. And and specifically, the, the the there's one really important Pauline thought here. Paul links this idea because his ministry is the, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. His ministry is to go into Gentile territory and tell them that the Most High wants them to come home, wants them to come back through Jesus the Messiah. Because you can read passages in Plato that have the same worldview as the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, where Gentiles thought, well, we worship the gods we do because that, the bigger gods said yeah. we should. You know, or they, allot, they actually use allotment language you know, in, in passages in Plato, and I have these in the book. Mm -hmm. you know, so Paul goes into this city and, and says, you don't need to worry about it. You don't need to fear the gods that you worship because they're lesser. The Most High became a man, died on a cross, and rose again so that you can come home and, and, and have a relationship with the Most High, the true God. Well, you know, Paul links that whole mission to something he refers to as the fullness of the Gentiles, mm. which, is, which is the event that precipitates the awakening of Israel and the end of days, which in turn precipitates the end of these powers, according mm. to Psalm 82. When the Lord, you know, rises up and takes back the nations, you know, at, at the end of days, the day of the Lord, they're done. They're, they're going to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. And so you, you get a sense from Scripture that they understand this. And so that the, the best thing that they can do, people, I get asked all the time, what about spiritual warfare? Well, I'll tell you what spiritual warfare is. Ask, your, ask yourself this question. Mm -hmm. What do the hostile powers, the supernatural powers of darkness, what do they fear? Okay, what they fear is the end of days. Mm -hmm. So spiritual warfare is accomplished by diminishing their kingdom one person at a time. In other words, the Great Commission. Mm -hmm. Jesus wasn't incorrect when he when he gave the instructions yeah. before he has said, this is how it's done. This is the whole point. So spiritual warfare is 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 believers going into you know to everyone, the whole world, and and winning them back to Yahweh one person at a, as a time. And as that kingdom grows, the kingdom of God, the other yeah. kingdom diminishes. Yeah. And at some point, God will look at the situation and say, you know what? The tank is full. Okay, the fullness of the Gentiles has been achieved. The Lord is going to return. And that's the end of this. It's the yeah. end of them. Yeah. 
And so they, they want to forestall the advance of the gospel. They want to in, inhibit it in any way they can. They want to mess up the lives of believers in any way they can because that impedes, you know, the embracing the truth, you know, the, the, the way we live our lives. I mean, all of this stuff that we see in Scripture, the pages of the New Testament, and really seeing the, you know, going on in the world around us, there's an intelligence behind it on both sides. Yeah. You know, and so that's that's at the core of what we what we ought to be thinking of in terms of spiritual warfare. It's not going in a room and shouting at demons, okay? That, that doesn't scare them. Yeah. What scares them is the thought that the kingdom of God will grow. That's what frightens them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's what we need to be about. Yeah. So fascinating. We, we know God is sovereign and we see these um, remarkable passages in Scripture, don't we, where God has this conversation with Satan about Job and uh, Jesus talks mm -hmm. to Simon Peter about, you know, he's been asked to be sifted. What, what how, how does this play out? What's God's relationship with these forces and, and, and how do they interact with each other? Well, I, I personally don't think that, that any being, any supernatural being that is in rebellion, uh, is is essentially on God's payroll. I don't mm. think they're on God's payroll at all. They don't work for God. God doesn't assign tasks to beings that hate him mm. and that want to undermine and destroy the things he wants to do. It doesn't make any sense at all. And, and you never see in Scripture, that, that again, this situation. You know, the, the the way this plays out in specific passages, I mean, there there are... I talked about this in Unseen Realm, and I talk about it a little bit in Demons, too. The, mm. the Satan figure of Job 1 and 2 is not the devil. Okay? Mm. It, it's, it, it's a term that gets applied to the rebel of Genesis 3 in certain passages you know, la later on in Second Temple literature. But the reason for this is actually Hebrew grammar. Hebrew is like English. Um, Hebrew does not tolerate a definite article in front of a proper personal name. In other words, I'm not the Mike. I'm mm. Mike. Okay. Mm. Uh, English doesn't tolerate that. Neither does Hebrew. In every instance in Job 1 and 2 and in Zechariah 3, the word Satan is prefixed with a definite article that tells you it is not a proper personal name. It's not capital S Satan. I, the English publishers capitalize it because people are used to seeing that. Mm. But a lot of study Bibles will put a footnote here and, and it'll say something like the adversary. Like I'm, I have the ESV on, on my screen right now. It has a footnote, the adversary. Yeah. That's actually what it means. And it, and it refers to a, a position you know, sort of a neutral position, you know, with within the, the the divine council, the divine assembly, you know, the meeting of the heavenly host that you see described there in Job one and two, where what, what does God ask him? Mm. You know, hey, we're you know, essentially where have you been? I've been going to and fro throughout the whole earth. You know, basically, this is this idea is part of a, a much bigger idea of, of heavenly books. You know, we're familiar with the Book of Life, but the, the Bible actually has a number of different kinds of books that it mentions that essentially keep a record of our lives, the wrongs committed uh, against us, the circumstances of our lives. And it's and the point of the metaphor there is not that God needs information and isn't too smart or, or that he has a short memory. The, the point is that God misses nothing. Yeah. Okay? That's the point. And so the, the, the Satan, the Hasatan, is one of the – his job is to go look and see what's going on and report back to God. Mm -hmm. it, it, I mean he's doing his job. This is not the devil from Genesis 3. I mean, the, the, the serpent of Genesis 3 is actually never called Satan in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. 
there, there's, there isn't a single verse that connects the two. Now, later in the Second Temple period, the two things get connected, and of course, the New Testament. And that's not a contrivance. It, it's actually very logical, because what, what later writers are doing is they're looking back at, at you know, the rebel of Genesis 3 and thinking, you know, this was an adversary. He, he opposed you know, what God was doing here. He, you know, so Satan, which, which again, either means a, an accuser, you know, and this is, this is the job of the guy in Job 1 and 2. If, if somebody does wrong, then he stands before God and says, hey, look over here, you know, this guy's you know, doing evil. Hmm. Well, the, the accusatory role can also be prosecutorial or, or adversarial, you know, sort, sort of a, you know, an opposition you know, figure. And that's the way it becomes thought of later on. And that word gets applied to the rebel of Genesis 3 because he was opposing what God wanted to do. So it's kind of a natural way, you know, to think about him. And the theology is the same that we have. I mean, there is a devil, you know, he gets called Satan later on, which means the accuser, okay, the the one who opposes God. So the theology is, is good and consistent, but it doesn't derive from, you know, the serpent being referred to in this way in the Hebrew Bible, yeah. it's actually derived from how people were thinking later and then looking back and saying, you know what, this term fits, let's start using it. And in the second temple period, there are lots of words for this figure that, that never get used in the Hebrew Bible. There, there's mastema, you know, which is you know, sort of like a destruction figure or again, another accuser figure. There's Belial, the worthless one, you know, Beelzebul. I mean, the, these aren't Old Testament terms. They they are ter- even devil, diabolos, the slanderer. You know, it, they're just a, a bunch of words that get used to point back at this Genesis three figure, yeah. and he he deserves all of them. There's he's not mislabeled in any way. <laughs> uh, but but what's going on in Job one and two is is you have a, a, a divine being doing his job, but he crosses a line. Mm-hmm. You know when when. <laughs> When God says, "Hey, you know, have you, have you have you taken a look at Job? Man, that guy's awesome. You know, yeah. he's blameless. You know, he yeah. loves me." And then the, the you know the adversary, the, the the Satan says, "Yeah, you know, sure he does. But if he took away everything that he had, he would curse you to your face." Now, now what he's done is he has questioned God's knowledge, God's omniscience, and he's also questioned God's integrity. That mm-hmm. like like God isn't telling you the full story. Mm-hmm. And that crosses a line, and that's and the whole book of Job has to play out the way it does, mm. so that God can show everyone else in heaven. Because Job doesn't know any of this is going on. First yeah. two chapters, this is in the heavenlies. Yeah. God has to show who is correct here and who isn't. Yeah. He he has to be vindicated, and Job suffers as a result of that. But then you know God restores in the end because Job he, he hasn't misjudged Job. Yeah. Job will be faithful. And he, and he is, you know, and, and so this is, this is the backstory that sometimes, you know, things happen to us that happen to us for reasons that are, are really either beyond our knowing or beyond our comprehension, you know, and, and, and that's, that's a, a huge lesson that we have to take away from, from what's going on in Job. But as far as bad guys in general, you know, God doesn't, he doesn't need them. He doesn't use them. They're opposed to him. Yeah. You know, it, they're, they're not on the payroll. So, Michael, you've mentioned that the, the, the powers of darkness on, on the payroll, but would it be fair to say, just like human beings that set themselves up as atheists on, on the earth now, and 
yet you still see God pour out his common grace on those. Mm-hmm. Are, are these still being sustained by God? Is is it a case of, obviously, we, we know God is sovereign. Is there a case of God pouring out his common grace on, on, on these powers as well? I don't, I don't believe there's any evidence in Scripture that there's an offer of redemption um, to fallen supernatural beings. And, and the specific argument against that actually comes in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, specifically Hebrews 2, because there the plan of salvation is linked to the incarnation. Now you say, well, that sounds kind of convoluted. What, what's the point of that? Well, the incarnation is essential to the whole plan of salvation because God has, you know, ever since Eden fails because of rebellion and sin, God Mm -hmm. had, you know, the whole story of the Old Testament is God interjecting himself back into human history Mm -hmm. and trying to, you know, kickstart the kingdom of God, you know, return to earth, you know, be present on earth with his people. You know, we, that's why we get Israel. That's why we get Sinai. It's why we get a temple. It's, you know, it's it's why we get all this stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. and God's making covenants with humans. You know, he makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant at Sinai. He makes a covenant with David. You know, we have all these covenants, but, but guess what? They're made with people, mm. and people fail mm. all the time. <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> so, I mean, you, you know, it, it, God isn't unaware of this. Yeah. So why is God doing it? Well, he's doing it because he created humans to be his imagers, and, and the image of God is not a quality given to humans. It is mm. a status. Uh, and I, I base that. I, I talk about this a lot in Unseen Realm. I don't really talk about it in the Demons book, but in Unseen Realm, I, I give people all the, the the Hebrew grammatical reasons, you know, how to read Genesis one twenty six and so on. Mm-hmm. The, the image of God is a re, is representation. We are God's proxy on the earth. You know, we we, we function as His stand-ins, so to speak, mm-hmm. and He gives us tasks. You know, He makes us family and He makes us partners. This is what God wanted originally. Now, to do those things, He shares His attributes with us. One of which is freedom. Mm-hmm. So we have the ability to make an uncoerced decision. Okay, we we, and and God knows where where this can and and will lead. And he He knows this is going to lead to failure, to mistakes, and to rebellion. Mm-hmm. But he chooses to do it this way because any other way is not genuine. We wouldn't be like him. Yeah. If God took away our freedom, for instance, we, we, we're not his imagers anymore. Yeah. We're no yeah. longer like him. Yeah. Okay, God isn't a robot. All right? These things go hand in hand. These theological concepts are, are intertwined and inseparable. You know, so, so God has made these decisions, and he, he deems that a good decision because what it tells us about the nature of God is that even though God foresees what's coming, you know, all the evil and the misery and the rebellion, he would rather have that world than not have us at all. Mm-hmm. So he makes this decision. Now, in the process of making the decision and then making later decisions to, to enter into covenants with people, you know, God knows what the problem is. This, this is always going to fail. But God knows something we don't. God does know how to succeed without changing the rules mm-hmm. and without ch- taking away freedom. He is going to become a man and he will fulfill all of the covenants he will be a descendant of abraham to bring back the nations he will keep the law perfectly he will be the son of david and the king okay god knows all this he has this base covered the incarnation is essential now what what does this have to do with angel redemption because the the thing that god wants to redeem is his human family in Eden. Mm-hmm. Okay, 
and and they are the specific referent why because humans are the referent of the covenants and because god is going to become a man he doesn't become an angel this is why hebrew says to which of the angels did he say and then you get this whole string of things yeah the plan is not for them the plan is for us okay we are the focus and the incarnation you know puts the you know puts the crosshairs right over us. I mean, we are, we are the object of all of this, so it's not them. So I think the incarnation aspect, which a lot of people don't connect with salvation in any other way other than to say Jesus showed up or this, you know, the Son of God showed up here as a man, mm. it, it's actually far more extensive than that. Mm. And it, it, it bleeds into a lot of other subjects, a lot of other you know, theological points, mm. and, and this is one of them. Yeah. We know Satan is a created being and he's not omnipresent, but we've all probably heard someone say that they really feel that they're being tested by the devil at the moment. How likely is it that an everyday Christian has actually been into contact with Satan? I, I don't think it's that likely. Um, again, if, if, I, if, if I can dare to say this, if, if I were Satan, <laughs> I'd look at the earth and say, Man, we're doing pretty well here. You know, yeah. I think I can take the day off, and it's not going to it's not going to ascend into into eternal bliss and obedience with God. You know, the, you know. In other words, humans are quite able and sufficient, and quite learned when it comes to to basically destroying themselves and the people yeah. around them. Yeah. Which is an unfortunate reality. It's an unfortunate extension of depravity. So I, I don't think you know that that he's needed in the life of of most people. Uh, I, I think, again, there are things that he would, and I, and I believe does orchestrate involves himself in. Mm. Uh, but for the, for the average, you know, the average set of circumstances in the, in the everyday world, we're doing just fine, mm. not fulfilling the great commission, sinning and, you know, destroying ourselves effectively, yeah. you know, and, and, and keeping people around us from believing. We're, we're doing just fine there. Yeah, yeah. So I think he could take a day off. You said he's doing other things. What, what does a day in the life of Satan look like, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think, I think he, 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 he observes where he needs to insert himself or wants to. Uh, again, I use the word chaos a lot because it's a huge theme in Scripture. Chaos mm. it, it means anti-Eden. So whatever he needs to do to maximize the effect or maximize his effort to keep the Great Commission from being accomplished, mm. okay, that that's where he's gonna that's where he's gonna put the lion's share of his time. That's where his money's at. It's on that mm. because that's the thing that needs to be continually delayed mm. and continually moved down the road. You know the, those sorts of things, and I think I think the the, the greater evil intelligences that is what they're about yeah. um, to to keep that those to keep the set of circumstances related to the day of the Lord and the second coming from yeah. from coming together from converging. Are some demons worse than others, and are some demons assigned to like specific people or specific areas? I, I do I do think because of the Old Testament concept, you know, the, this extends from the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. I, the mm -hmm. Old Testament has a concept of cosmic geography on, on both sides. There are there are sacred places, and those places are marked by either things or emblems of you know where people encountered Yahweh, for instance, you know, the patriarchs in Old Testament or New Testament days. Mm -hmm. And then, but the reverse is also true. Mm -hmm. You know, you have you, you have places that 
are given over or were given over to great evil. Bashan is a, is a good example in the Old Testament. Um, in the Old Testament, this was essentially ground zero for, for evil. It, was, it became, in the days of Je Moses and Joshua, this is where the last vestiges, vestiges of the Rephaim, the giant clans, lived. Mm. Uh, it was known, that place was known to Canaanites, not, not biblical people, but, but Canaanites. Uh, it had the cities Ashtaroth and Edrai that were considered gateways to the netherworld. Um, you, in, in Ugaritic texts, you actually see that. You know, and, and these places are mentioned in the Old Testament. Well, later on in the New Testament era, Bashan is, is home to what? Well, Caesarea Philippi. This is where the, the thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church passage takes place. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's adjacent to what used to used, what was in Old Testament days, a, a cult center de dedicated to Baal. Uh, in Jesus' day, it was dedicated to Zeus and Pan. Pan is from is the the deity from which we get a lot of the early church history uh, devil imagery, the horns and the tail and all that stuff. But Pan goes all the way back to Egypt. But it, all of this is at the foot of Mount Hermon, you know, where where Jewish tradition had the the sons of God, the watchers of Genesis six, descend to corrupt humanity. I mean, this is a bad place. Mm, <laughs> okay, yeah. There's just a lot of things going on here. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, where, where, where Legion is encountered. Yeah. Again, that's at the Southern, the Southern portion of what, of what would have been Bashan. You know, they, I mean, there, there are places in the gospels that have deep histories, you know, on, on the dark side. And so I do think there are places like this around the world where people give themselves over to, to supernatural evil and they become, they become markers. They become places of permission. And solicitation is a big deal. I mean, a practicing polytheist today would tell you that. A practicing occultist would tell you that. You, you don't. These things just don't happen. There, there has to be some sort of solicitation. Uh, this is why necromancy and other practices were forbidden in the Old Testament. They weren't forbidden because they didn't work. Mm -hmm. They were forbidden because they did. Yeah. And and you're not supposed to to. To, to trust the beings on the other side with the knowledge they're giving you. You, mm -hmm. you don't know what you're getting. It's not your domain. Yeah. You know, so God tells people don't do this because you, you, you know, you're going to be deceived. You're going to be harmed. Yeah. It's not that God doesn't want you to know things, you know, but God wants to hog knowledge for himself. No, he, he doesn't want you to get messed up. So, you know, the, the, you have these, you have these ideas again, the solicitation, uh, people have histories. They they have histories that at places where they where they do this or that ritual or they do this or that thing, and you know there is a sense of that in scripture. That that's not an entirely um, sort of entertainment based idea. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's very deeply rooted in um, both biblical and wider you know, ancient thinking. Yeah. Does sin in a, in a Christian's life or the type of entertainment that they may may get involved with by watching, you know, bad TV programs or getting involved with pornography or other types of things that mm -hmm. we should stay away from, does that solicit and encourage the powers of darkness into that person's life? I, yeah, I think it does. You know, again, with this whole the whole well, not spiritual warfare, but mm. but a subset of that. The, the, I often get asked, you know, can a Christian be demon possessed? Well, if, if if by possessed you mean owned, mm. the answer is no, mm. because if you're in Christ, you're in the body of Christ, you're one with Christ. You know, look, these New Testament you know phrases and metaphors are important. You're joined to Christ. You have a new master. You're a new creation. Okay, mm. no, you, you can't be owned by another. Mm. You know, 
especially you know the, the devil okay because this is what the gospel and the resurrection were yeah. designed to defeat yeah. okay because you you know you're not going to die anymore so the curse of, of of genesis 3 is no longer upon you you owe him nothing he has nothing on you mm. so there, there's a there's a severation there so you can't be owned but there are a lot of passages that link the activity, like warnings against giving place to the devil or you know, giving way to the tempt, to temptation. The devil is called the tempter. There are places like this that link uh, influence and oppression, mm-hmm. harassment with you know, human behavior. So mm-hmm. there is that link. I mean, you wouldn't be warned in the New Testament to not do this or that. And then have the, the devil or, or the powers of darkness looped into the conversation by way of temptation or, you know, the fact that they want to encourage this to, you know, again, because it's self-destructive. Yeah. That actually means something. You know, it, it means you ought to be thinking about what it is you're doing because somewhere along the line, this is going to be a tool. Yeah. It's going to be a thing used against you. Yeah. And this is why you're warned. Yeah. Did you open yourself up to any sort of risk by by writing this book, Michael? Did you see anything strange happening whilst you were doing it, or ongoing in your no, life? No, I, I, I didn't. I mean, I'm I'm not a solicitor uh, at all. Mm. Uh, my my attitude with writing anything like I write fiction too, you know, and, yeah. and in fiction I, I get to be, you know, a, a a specific power of darkness. You know, I, I write science fiction. I'm actually have my head in, into my third one yeah. um, as as we speak here. Uh, I, I'm not a solicitor. My my approach to all these things is, what can I do? I mean, I'm only one person, but what can I do mm. to basically be a pain in the butt? Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so like, I'm 180 degrees r- removed yeah, okay, yeah. from solicitation. <laughs> I, I read a lot of occult you know literature because I'm kind of interested in uh, like. like uh, I've, I've been on the in the fringe community for over 20 years. M- basically, things like UFOs and spiritualism, I, th- these are things that interest me. How anything that really sort of functions as an alternative worldview between the biblical worldview and materialistic Darwinism. Mm-hmm. That's for, and you know things like ancient aliens. They 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 they're right in between because they. They have an element of transcendence and mystery, but it's not embracing what the Bible says, and it's not embracing what what a materialistic yeah. atheist says. So, yeah. people are dissatisfied with with materialistic atheism. I mean, it, it has a loud, it has a, a big voice now. It, it basically a lot of loud mouths, okay, on the yeah. internet. Yeah. You know, village atheists, as I refer to them. Yeah. So they're loud, yeah. Yeah. and they have YouTube channels. Well, oh, wonderful, but you're not really doing very well because most people aren't buying it. That doesn't mean they're buying the Judeo-Christian worldview, but they have not junked the notion that there's something out there that's bigger than them, that's spiritual mystery transcendence and all this. So I I read a lot of this kind of of literature to to understand why why people find this attractive, um, how best to approach someone, you know, who, who has, embrace this worldview as against you know the scriptural worldview because i again i have my own youtube channel i write fiction i I write it for these purposes you know to get people in those groups who will never go to church yeah they'll never read a theology book 
but you can get to the table for a discussion and, and, and I can affirm with them. Yes, there are other powers. Yes. You know, the, this, this thing that you think is real and then you think that Christians don't understand. I do understand it. And, and I agree with you, yeah. but you probably need to think a little bit differently about it. And, and you need to, to, to sort of own the fact that you've dismissed, dismissed the Bible because there's a caricature of the Bible living in your head that has no basis in real scholarship. So we can sit down and have a conversation. I'm, I'm not going to be the, you know, the normal person just quoting Bible passages at you and, and telling you that what you believe isn't real. Yeah. I'm, I'm here to tell you that what you believe is real, but you need to start thinking a little bit differently about it. Yeah. Last question, Michael. When you say spiritual warfare to the listeners, especially those who are mums and dads, their their experience of spiritual warfare will be on a Sunday morning before they go to church and then you'll see a, one of their kids who have been as good as gold all week, they'll suddenly get their rice krispies and pour them over their head or, you know, yeah. we see it in our family's life. Every, every, you know, we do a Bible study at seven o'clock most evenings and just as we all sit down to pray, the dog will start barking and the phone will ring and everything, go, everything will go wrong. Sure. What's happening in that yeah. moment? Yeah, I, I think that, whether whether uh, I'm not going to dismiss the idea that there could be something you know cosmic going on yeah. because I mean yeah. that sounds a little silly but I'll tell you why why I, I will not dismiss it yeah. because there I was I, I'm nine years old I'm sitting in a living room mm. and you know on a, on a broken couch with you know there, there's there's the mom with her four kids you know. Mm reading Bible passages to us. And there's all sorts of things going on. Two of the kids have cystic fibrosis. You know, they, you know, it's just trouble breathing. I mean, any mm. number of distractions. Mm. But I came from that. That whole set of circumstances, you know, the Lord was in it. Mm. And I think, you know, cosmic intelligences know that they're essentially, they're not alone in the room. Okay, they're not alone in the room, and and so there there could very well be distractions and conflicts and things like this, because all it takes is just you know for the for the Lord to to use one person, and then in my case, you know, I I write I write a book or books, you know, I have a podcast, and and that ripples out into into thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of lives. So Mm -hmm. why wouldn't they be interested? Yeah in preventing that. Mm. Now, I think on, on the other side of it, you know, a lot of this stuff is just, just normal course of life. And, and as parents, you, you, you can't, you can't presume that if, if we, boy, we really had a bad Sunday morning, <laughs> it's like, it's like the, the whole thing's just blown up. You know, they're, they're, their eternal destiny yeah. is now sealed forever because of the rice Krispies. Yeah. No, 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 no. No, that that isn't true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, God will take another shot at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant, Doctor Michael Heiser. I have so enjoyed this interview. I cannot believe that time has flown so so quickly. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. If if people want to reach out to you, I know you're on social media. What are your channels? Well, the the homepage is drm. SH. So DR is in doctor and then my initials MSH.com. You can follow me on Twitter. It's at MS Heiser. Uh, I have an Instagram account, which I actually 
don't know what that is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it's something like DRMSH, yeah. PhD, or something like yeah. my kids made it. So <laughs> I don't know what it is, you know, yeah. but I, I, I do know it exists because I do see it. You yeah. know, I, I look at it. But uh, the, really, the, the website, drmsh.com, is the nerve center for everything else. So Brilliant. that's where people can find me. And can you buy the book through your website as well, Michael? Uh, I don't I don't actually have a direct link on the front of the site. I mean, there's a tab that you can get to the books. But so the best place to go for the books is, is Amazon. Sure. Or people can go to Lexham Press. It's L-E-X-H-A-M press lexampress.com and order it directly through that site as well brilliant well what i'll do to make it really easy for everybody in the description below i'll find michael's instagram account and i'll tag that in there as well all of it all of the go. um all of the links that michael's just mentioned will be in the description below this video michael once again thank you so much and all the best with your with your new book yeah thank you